0: Morning, everyone. All right, well, welcome for those that are rejoining us uh, for maybe the second or third time, um, especially after baptism service last week. Um, as Simon mentioned, just a really great day of celebration of uh, what God has done and is continuing to do here um, at New Life. Um, if this is your first time visiting or we haven't otherwise met yet, uh, my name is Young, lead pastor here at New Life. Um, and we are starting a new series this morning, as you can see by the screen. Uh, you can see the new artwork that uh creative team has worked on. Um, if you look closely, I don't know if you can tell from there, um, it has Corinth inside those praying hands. So it's uh, quite a, um, a relevant, you know, they're always very relevant, but it's quite um, yeah, detailed. So I do encourage you to get in close and have a look um, at the praying hands as well. Uh, the new series is called "United as One," as you can see, um, and it's through the book of First Corinthians, the Letter to the Corinthians. And it'll be broken up into four subsections. So if you've ever read through First Corinthians before, you know that it's quite a, a long letter, and so it's broken up into those sections that you see on screen. So one in mind, 1 Corinthians 1:10 1, through 417. Uh, one in body will be the second uh, subsection, 418 to 740, one in heart. And that'll be from chapter eight to chapter, uh, end of chapter 14. And then one in resurrection, which is chapter 15. And these are uh, bookended by the opening of the letter um, and the closing of the letter. So the opening of the letter is the one that we'll be looking at this morning. And after each section, you know, I can imagine that you're looking at this and thinking, "This, is, this we're gonna be in this for years. You know, It's not gonna be like that. So we're gonna take a two week break from 1 Corinthians after each subsection as well with a bit of a longer break for Christmas. And so uh, we'll have plenty to jump around in as well. Um, For today, just to give you an idea of what we're going to be going over, there's, um, I guess, five big things that I want you to walk away with this morning as we read through uh, the first part of 1 Corinthians and as we uh, listen to the preaching of the Word. Number one, when we live unaware, uh, the culture around us will infiltrate and shape us. So when you live unaware, the culture around us will shape us. Uh, Number two, apart from God, we have no true understanding of our identity. You know, we like to shape our identity around different things, but without God, we have no true understanding of what this identity is. Uh, Number three, the way we live must be united with what we proclaim. And so we can't just have one or the other. Uh, Number four, altogether, we must be united as one church belonging to, to God. And so we can't be divided in any sort of way. And finally, there's hope, because God is at work in our midst And so with that in mind, why don't I pray for us, and then we'll get into the Word. Father, we turn to you in hope, uh, just recognizing, Lord, that you are good, uh, that you're faithful, and that you are at work at New Life. As mentioned, we're far from perfect, and yet it's in you that we find uh, the perfection of our faith as you take us day by day, as you take us deeper into your love, And as you help us, Lord, to change uh, what couldn't be changed before. When we think about all the parts of who we are, uh, whether our minds, our bodies, our hearts, whatever it might be, we recognize, Lord, how difficult it is for a person to change their ways. Uh, We see it not only in the people around us, but we see it in the mirror every day. But when we look to you, Lord, we know that we are images of who you are, and we want to image you perfectly. We want to turn to you and we want to be changed by you, so we ask, Lord, that you would do your transformation, your transformative work in our hearts this morning, God, through your Holy Spirit. We know, Lord, that through your Son, Jesus, you made a way for us, and so we turn to you, we glorify him, and we ask, Lord, that his name will be the only one preached, that his name will be the only one on our lips, and his name will be the only one that shapes us in our culture, in our lives, in all that we do to shape us this morning, help us to love you and help us to seek you. Would you open up our eyes and our ears that we might be able to see and hear you and open up our hearts that we might be able to receive you and be transformed by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So 1 Corinthians is a bit of a strange letter Um, if you've ever read through the letter itself. um, It's immediately familiar to a lot of people who haven't read the Bible otherwise. So if you look on screen, you probably see well, maybe you recognize some of these things, you know, maybe you don't recognize some of these things, but it's referenced quite often, you know, first of all, in weddings, you know, not even always in Christian weddings, it gets referenced, uh, in movies, animations, books, poetry, paintings, songs, all sorts of places. You know, you will always hear First Corinthians at some point in your life, I believe, and yet it remains one of the most difficult letters to understand in the New Testament, The things that are described in this letter, the reason it's so difficult is because sometimes it talks about Corinthian wisdom. You know, it talks about the way that we understand this world around us. It talks about legal matters that the church members are taking up with one another. Like, imagine, like, look across to the person next to you and imagine this person is taking you to court about some sort of matter and is suing you for all that you have for some reason. Some of you are imagining this with a lot more ease for some reason. Um, There's references to prostitution and pagan worship and meat markets, you know, some of these things we definitely don't have experience in, and there's no explanation attached to most of these things, and so we're reading these things, and we're just kind of left to uh, our imagination to try to figure out what is Paul talking about, and these are often uh, not the things that are referenced in popular media either, so you don't hear about the meat markets when you're at a wedding, you know, you don't hear about these things. The -the behind-the-scenes stuff of the language being used as well, so Corinth itself as a place, its social customs and its religious practices, all of these are so far away from where we're at right now. You know, when we think about where we're at in Sydney, New South Wales, when we think about the church that we're a part of, the time period that we're in, yes, we can imagine Greece, and we can imagine Corinth, which is a real place that's there right now, And yet the place in history is so far away from where we're at right now that it's hard to imagine up just a picture of what's going on in this letter. And not only this, but the letter itself, although it's called 1 Corinthians, is itself a response to another letter, and to a report, and we don't have access to what this is responding to. We only have access to what Paul is saying here, you know, in response to this. And so we're like, what what was the question Well, we can kind of guess But this is a good place to start, the fact that it's a letter. This means that it's written by someone, and it's written to someone or some people. And this informs our reading. Oftentimes, we don't even think about this part when we read through the New Testament letters, because we sometimes read these letters as though there's some sort of instruction manual for how we should live our lives. But that's not the main priority that these letters take when we read these things. As an example, I've uh, prepared two different excerpts from letters that I've found, and the writer, the receiver, and the context changed the way that we read these letters immensely. Okay, so the first letter, I'll read this to you if you can't see it on screen. For years, after i become a regular communicant, I can't tell you how dull my feelings were and how my attention wandered at the most important moments. It's only in the last year or two that things have begun to come right which just shows how important it is to keep on doing what you're told. When you hear this, when you read this for yourself, how do you read this letter? You know, what's the tone that comes across to you? You know, we often have arguments because of text messages because we can't convey tone without our little emojis. So what's the tone that's happening here? Is it overbearing? Is it commanding? Is it loving? Is it confessional? These are things that we have to ask ourselves. Here's the second letter. When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face that are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. What about this one? Is the tone of the letter therapeutic? Does it have to do with informing about therapy? Is it New Age, is it observational? Both of these letters are written by the same person, C.S. Lewis, you know, Christian theologian, great Christian writer. The first to his goddaughter, addressing her nervousness at taking her first communion. Basically telling her, don't worry so much about whether or not your emotions are in this. Just do what people are informing you or instructing you to do, and the feelings will come later. And the second is from the perspective, C.S. Lewis is writing this, from the perspective of a demon, writing to another demon about tormenting a Christian in the screw tape letters. But unless we have this context, it's really hard to tell exactly what's being conveyed here. You know, it's really easy to read our own interpretations into these things when we remove everything like the writer or the receiver of the letter. So what about our letter today, 1 Corinthians? If you read the first two verses with me again, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So you can already tell the writer of this letter is the Apostle Paul. We know a lot about him. If you've been at New Life for a little while, we Heard about him on many occasions. Various sermons over the last year and a half. uh, We've talked about him most recently in our series Through Baptism, I Promise. uh, In the final sermon, we actually visited Paul's life and we saw how the persecutor became the persecuted proclaimer of who Jesus Christ is. He talked about how he was baptized. He talked about how he was met on the road to Damascus by Jesus Christ. This is a man who knows the Corinthian culture really well. He's done a fair bit of traveling. If you've ever seen the maps at the end of your Bibles, it talks about his missionary journeys around the world, and so he didn't have planes at that time either, so he's on boats, he's been shipwrecked, he's done all sorts of things, walking, so on and so forth. Gone through Jerusalem, Greece, Syria, Cilicia, Galatia, Tarsus, Antioch, Ephesus, and has even lived in Corinth, so our place of interest this morning, Corinth. In fact, while on his second missionary journey, he founded this church in Corinth. You can read about this in Acts 18. It actually talks about how this came about. He founded this church. So you could say that Paul has a very close relationship with the people that he's writing to. And so as we read this letter, as this letter unfolds, we begin to see Paul's purpose in writing this letter. He wants for the church to unite together on essential truths of the gospel. He doesn't want them to be, de- to be divisive about certain things. He desires for the church to glorify God by discarding worldly things. He has a great love for the church, I suppose, just as any pastor would. Verse 2 tells us who he's writing to. The church of God at Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called us saints, So Corinth was destroyed by Rome and then refounded in 44 BC by Caesar. It became one of the most important cities in the region, in the Roman Empire, because of its strategic location. You can see, it's very zoomed out, you can see it though, Um, it's kind of in between these two bodies of water, okay? You can see it on this modern day map. It's between bodies of water and important cities in biblical times, Asia Minor is to the east. Macedonia to the north, we read about these things in Acts when Paul's doing these missionary journeys and he's trying to figure out where to go next. Rome is to the west, and Egypt is to the south. These are all very significant cities in the ancient world. So it became the center of trade and commerce, and they started a canal there for shipping as well that's still used to this day. And so you can see this is a very important city in the ancient world for commerce. Because of all this, Corinth, remember, it was destroyed and then it was rebuilt, but it quickly became a very rich place. People could make a living. They just had to move there. They just had to go into business. So lots of people from different places came to this place to make a living. Many religions settled in, and many traveling speakers came to address gathered crowds, to share their ideas about how life should be. Now, as many prosperous cities do, the people that occupy the city became obsessed with status and greed and fell into the worship of idols and sexual immorality. This is unfortunately the story for much of humanity, much of human history, even for us today. As people grow in money, power, respect, status, all of these things, We end up believing that we ourselves are wise, that we've earned these things. We deserve these things. We can see what we judge to be good and we can take it ourselves, is what we convince ourselves of. And we exchange the glory glory of the immortal God for images. And thus we become fools and we become given over to our sinful desires, false wisdom, idolatry, and sexual immorality. But the opposite is true for those of us who come to know the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians reads this For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Like, if you read those last two lines again, like the Gentiles who don't know God. As we read in this, another one of Paul's letters, those who turn to God away from pagan beliefs turn away from their idols and sexual immorality in order to worship him. This is important to know because most of the members of the church in Corinth were Gentiles. They're not, you know, they're not Jews who have, you know, followed after God. These are Gentiles who have turned away from their idols to turn to Jesus Christ. But something's gone wrong. Since that time when Paul founded this church, Paul's been away from the Corinthian church. He's been continuing on in missionary journeys. He's been in jail, and something has happened. And he receives reports from various people, and even a letter from the church filled with all sorts of questions for him questions about we'll get there we'll get there there are reports of some really serious sin in the church and it's as though the members have turned back to the idols not only this but some people have become divided about who their favorite christian leader is because they've heard the preaching of apollos and they think man that guy can preach paul not so good apollos very good And so they start becoming divided on these things as though this is of some sort of importance. What has happened since Paul has been away? The church in Corinth has become Corinthian. It's become very similar to the culture around them. When we live unaware, the culture around us will infiltrate us and will shape us. Since becoming a part of new life, since your baptism or your confirmation since wintercon since receiving Jesus Christ as your lord and savior have you allowed for the gospel of grace to fully reshape your life your heart if the culture around us is still shaping us more than our god then what are we even doing what are we claiming there's this uncritical acceptance of all sorts of attitudes values behaviors from the city around them that the Corinthian church allows to shape them. They love to hear new ideas, and because of this, they're unable to fully understand the truth of the gospel, or they just reject it, because it doesn't quite match with their worldview that they're being shaped in. But the gospel is demanding that they enter into a new world. The gospel demands that we enter into a new world as well, that our way of thinking, our way of living, The things that we love our entire life and our being get re centered around this man, Jesus Christ, around the cross, and around how we've been adopted into his family. And it means that our worlds get changed. For the Corinthian church, they're living in a society that loves to talk on and on about wisdom, and they love to discuss new ideas. They're having TED Talks every day. They want to hear the new ideas from the new traveling speaker. Who speaks really well. But as immoral people, they don't want to be bothered by things like sexual immorality. They want to revel in it. They don't want to hear about the preservation of the body. They don't care about the body. As people who are obsessed with status and are greedy for more, they care about the things that they think will empower them, even about spiritual things. They want to know how do I get more power? How do I get more status within the church? They don't want to hear things about the breakdown of the distinctions between the rich and the poor. They don't want to hear about how there's no more Gentile or Jew, no more slave nor free. The Corinthians were happy to be Christians as long as there wasn't too much disturbance or change for their way of life. What about us? Where are we at with this? Are we following Christ for the perceived benefits that come our way? Do we want God, but only as long as he doesn't mess up our lives? We live in a time and a place that's not unlike the Corinthians. Sydney itself is not exactly the city of morality. Like, Do you feel this? When you walk around, when you look at the people, when you look at yourself, do you feel this? we still have the age-old struggles with immorality and idolatry, greed and lust for more. Look at the people. It's not just our local city, though. We're part of this increasingly global community. You know, this information that we share, like, I feel like I know more about America sometimes than Australia, and I don't know why that is. I feel like I know more about Ukraine than Australia sometimes. And it, it's mind boggling when you think about it. Similar to Corinth, though, this is a society. This global community that we're a part of is a society that's shaped by thinkers and speakers. It's not accidental. Like, we haven't arrived at our current time in our culture by accident. Things are happening quite purposefully. There's poets and philosophers, there's thinkers and speakers, there's psychologists and celebrities that shape the way that we think. This has, gotten to, this has gotten our society to a place where we've discarded previous notions of what it means to even be human. Do you realize this? This is like the baseline of humanity has changed. We've instead accepted a very new version of what it means to be ourself. There's this historian and theologian named uh, Carl Truman in his new book, Strange New World, he describes this understanding of self as expressive individualism, okay? And what this means is that this is the idea that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that needs to be expressed in public if individuality is to be realized. What does that all mean, okay? So a whole bunch of, you know, nothing, right? So in, in other words, There's a belief that we're masters over our own lives, that nothing can make demands of us, and that we can only have true happiness in our lives if the things that we feel inside are lived out publicly and everyone around us applauds and affirms us, and anyone who doesn't must be canceled out, must disappear from the public eye. However we live must be celebrated by everyone around us, Otherwise, we can't have true happiness. Anything less will be an oppression of what we perceive to be our identities because the most authentic thing to society is what we think about ourselves. I think, therefore, I am, Descartes says. We believe this about ourselves, and so we think this is all there is. Like, the most authentic thing is what we think, and so we live as though we're brains trapped in these bodies, these God-forsaken bodies that don't do what we tell them to do, that don't, you know, lose whatever we ask it to lose. We can even shape our bodies into whatever we want these days through hormones or surgery or new laws. This is what we believe about ourselves. And so nothing can make demands of who we are or our humanity because we can shape who we are. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us as we're talking about these things. You know where we're headed. This plays out most in the areas of things like sexuality and idolatry. These are areas that we're gonna see addressed in this letter and in this series. And these are areas that have been problems for all of humanity since the time of the Corinthians and before then as well. My brothers and sisters, we have no true understanding of our identity apart from God. We can believe that we do. We can believe that we're masters of our own fates, but where will that lead us? In 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time, will we be doing the same thing again? Will we be regressing and saying, maybe we shouldn't have inserted all that plastic into our bodies. Maybe we shouldn't have reshaped ourselves. There's something not right. And so we go back to natural movement or something. Everything is happening in these waves. Our society fools itself into believing that because we can manipulate plastics and chemicals, that we have utter control over ourselves. I can't decide what to wear in the morning. I can't decide what to eat in the morning. And yet, I'm supposed to believe that I have ultimate control over where I'm going to end up in 30 years' time. Have we bought into this? Like Christians, have we bought into this? Paul writes to the Corinthians to tell them that their identity is given to them by God in the light of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. We've seen as much from our time at WinterCon, born of God, where children of our loving Father adopted into his family because of what Jesus has done. Verse 2 says, To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours we're reminded in the opening of this letter about who we are, our real identity, not what we believe about ourselves, that we're sanctified in Christ, that we're called as saints, we're different, we're holy, we're distinctive from this perishing world. Why go back to it? We're not primarily consumers in this world. We're You know, flooding our eyes and our ears with film and television, with podcasts and lectures, with things that uncritically shape our thoughts and our hearts. But the way we live must be united with what we proclaim. What we proclaim is different. Shouldn't our way of life be different as well? This is hard, though, and I acknowledge this. You know, I acknowledge this as a consumer of the culture myself. Even as I look back at previous sermons where we talked about how we very uncritically consume mass media, like I think back and I think, oh man, have my media habits changed since then? A little bit, but not quite to the point that I'd like it to be. And I know it shapes me. I know that it shapes us. This is a daunting task for us, as daunting as it must have been for Paul and the Corinthian church at this time, and yet when Paul finishes writing this opening to this letter, He does it with thanksgiving and confidence in God. Read with me, verses four to nine. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end So that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians besides chapter 13, you know that it's not an easy letter. Like, take some time over the next couple of weeks just to read through 1 Corinthians. It's not easy to read, it doesn't feel nice to read it can't have been comfortable for Paul to pen this letter either. Like, I imagine writing an email like this to New Life, I think I'll, I i do not know what I'll do. Maybe I'd resign first, okay? There's a lot of uncomfortable things to get addressed here. They talk about sexual immorality in all of its ugliness, litigation between church members, idolatry. He talks about these in really, you know, horrible detail. And yet Paul's focus here Is not on the Corinthian problems. In fact, he thanks God for the very things that are causing issues in this church, like the spiritual gifts that are causing so much division in the church. He says, I thank God that you've been equipped with every spiritual gift. He talks about their enrichment in speech and knowledge, even though it's their very givenness to this worldly wisdom that shipwrecks them. Paul's focus is on how God has done this. He boasts in God. He knows that he's a source of all knowledge. He knows that nothing was achieved with human hands, so he turns their attention back to God. He turns his own attention back to God as well. We can have this thanksgiving and this confidence as well. When we face up to the problems that are facing new life, that are facing the church in this world, right now, in this modern age, when we face the problems that we ourselves face, we can have this thanksgiving and this confidence. When we look at our society and our own lives and how they reflect the world that we live in, we might feel overwhelmed. And what can we possibly do by our own strength? Can we change the cultural narrative? I've heard it talked about before that we need to take on different spheres of influence in order to change the world. Is that going to happen? Have you seen Christian films? I don't think we're going to take that mountain. As Paul looks to God for this, so do we. New Life, our church stands at the precipice. We're looking over this world and we're in a good spot now. I feel it. I feel like we're in a good spot now, New Life. Some of you are feeling it as well, but we have to be aware of what kind of cultural wolves seek to get in, seek to infiltrate our minds and our hearts. We can't do it on our own, but God can. Just as he has done in saving us in Christ Jesus, just as he's done in this work in this letter to the Corinthians. He's also at work in shaping us, in sanctifying us, that we might be called as saints. As we get ready to enter into this first subsection of the letter uh, next week of our series, we must come together in one mind. Next, Next week, we're starting off in one in mind, in the way that we think about things, that we might be able to seek true wisdom from God, not from the sources around us, not from our parents' generations, not from whatever educational institution or media or whatever, that we might stand united as one in what we proclaim and what we live out as children of God. Why don't we pray?